0: When I went to Boston to look for a sidewalk ballet, I looked in three neighborhoods. Beacon Hill, which didn't have it, Back Bay, which super didn't have it, and the North End, which did still have it almost 60 years later. However, we realized that having a diverse neighborhood in the way Jane Jacobs meant didn't stop a neighborhood from being totally gentrified. But I should have gone to the South End, because as it turns out... The residents there literally followed Jacob's prescriptions for a healthy neighborhood and effective neighborhood governance. Yet they still failed to stop gentrification. In fact, the people who tried to create a diverse neighborhood in the South End were the gentrifiers. I'm Ajay Pandey, and this is Perfectly Nice Neighbors, an exploration of gentrification in the Boston area. Sylvie Tissot follows in the footsteps of Alexis de Tocqueville as a French academic performing a social science study about the weirdness of the United States. However, whereas de Tocqueville concluded that American individualism had contributed to real democratic ideals, Tissot points out an American elite that desperately clings to those ideals while tightly controlling everyone they consider the other. Tissot's book, Good Neighbors, Gentrifying Diversity in the South End, specifically focuses not just on Boston. But on a neighborhood in Boston, the South End. It's bordered by Back Bay, Chinatown, and Roxbury, and it's a part of Boston I'm not really familiar with, especially considering that there are no T-stops within this rather large neighborhood. You just have the Orange Line running the border between Back Bay and the South End. But as it turns out, this neighborhood has a hell of a story. A decades-long battle between upper-middle-class white gentrifiers and working-class, often radical, black and brown tenants. You can guess, of course, who had won by the 80s and 90s. Tussauds dug into that story between 2004 and 2010, when she lived on and off in the South End, interviewing residents, getting invited to galas, even watching people's dogs. For the most part, she was let into the circles of these gentrifiers. They thought it was cool to hang out with a French academic, but she never really fit in. In fact, she grew to dislike them a bit. I came to dislike these folks too as I read this book. But I also realized, to my horror, that I'm not too different from them. Of course, the South End did exist before it got hella gentrified. In the post-war period, Boston was in rough shape. After a one-two punch of the Great Depression and the suburban white flight Jane Jacobs railed against, the city had two wealthy neighborhoods, Beacon Hill and Back Bay. Everywhere else was defined by working class people, and in the South End, which had an especially bad reputation, those people tended to be black and Hispanic, Puerto Rican specifically. As white people left for the suburbs, cities were doubling down on what they called urban renewal, what Jacobs called slum clearing, and what we know as mass demolition. Boston tried to do that in the South End, but folks fought back. There was a huge radical activist streak in the South End in groups like CAUSE, the Community Assembly for a Unified South End, headed in the 60s by Mel King. These activists fought City Hall, protested demolition, demanded construction of affordable housing. There was even a community health center that was put together in 1969. These activists catalyzed the unslumming Jane Jacobs waxed lyrical about. They stayed, they banded together, they fought city hall, and they won a few times. But these tactics were appropriated by gentrifiers, upper middle class white people coming to the south end at that same time. They bought and renovated their own houses, formed neighborhood associations that continue to hold power today, fought City Hall, and were even more successful at lobbying than the radicals. I mean, they were well-off white professionals, what do you expect? Under the Jacobs framework, they were simply newcomers who joined in as the neighborhood unslumped and who helped push along that very unslumming. But it wasn't the everyone wins scenario Jacobs promised. It was gentrification, and it turned the South End from a working-class, black-and-brown neighborhood to an upper-middle-class, white neighborhood that lets working-class, black-and-brown people stay but only if they stay in a corner and act like good window dressing. But let's take a good look at these gentrifiers. Who are they and what do they want? For the most part, they are upper middle class white professionals. Lawyers, doctors, managers, bankers, real estate agents, engineers. A good number are gay, but in a Neil Patrick Harris way. Monogamous, kids having or kids wanting, and relatively heteronormative. They don't rent out places in lodging houses or tenements like the working class residents. They buy whole houses or move into condos. The older gentrifiers, who came in around the 60s and 70s, had a complicated set of reasons for moving in. I mean, first off, real estate was cheap. Folks could buy whole houses at bargain prices, provided they were okay with putting tons of work into renovation. But, and this is a theme to so emphasizes, The market isn't the only force at work here. You see, the South End was considered a frontier. And these early gentrifiers are still called pioneers. They saw adventure in that neighborhood. They bragged to Tissot about not having a kitchen for a month, about living next to a burnt out house, about how all their friends thought they had a death wish. They thought living among poor people of color was sexy in an Indiana Jones kind of way. Remember in Plymouth, when Katie and Annie Donegan were talking about the parallels between gentrification and colonialism? Yeah, check out the colonial impulses here. Some of these older folks really were trying to make the world a better place. Take Colin and Joan Diver. Colin was a Harvard Law guy, but he was shaken by the civil rights movements of the 60s, and in 1968 he decided to work for an activist-y Boston mayor, Kevin White. Joan Diver was similarly inspired and worked in philanthropy. And the two of them moved not to the suburbs, like the median white professional family, but to the South End. The way Joan put it, if they were going to commit themselves to the war on urban poverty and injustice, they should be living closer to the front line. Then they moved to Newton in the late 70s, like the performative allies they were, talking big game about equality while doing little to solve the actual problem. We'll get to what performative allyship means in a few minutes. Okay, maybe that's harsh but they wouldn't be the only performative allies gentrifying the South End. A lot of these older gentrifiers were also really focused on breaking into the Boston cultural elite. They wanted to be taken seriously, they wanted to sell real estate, and it didn't help that people thought they lived in a ghetto. So a bunch of these early gentrifiers formed the South End Historical Society. At first, none of the people there were historians, but they called historians in for events, they held galas, and they ran tours of the Victorian architecture in the South End. They immersed themselves in art, architecture, the norms of European gentry, and the specific history of the South End as a masterwork of urban planning ruined by drunks and prostitutes that they were reviving. This association, which is one of the many powerful overlapping neighborhood associations in the South End, lobbied City Hall to install period brick sidewalks in the South End, even though the South End never had brick sidewalks it lobbied against public housing projects for fear that it would ruin the architecture. And although the group has always been kinda conservative, some of the extra conservative members went as far as thinly veiled public racism when contesting these projects. These people desperately wanted to become old money elites and in the 60s and 70s, they did battle with black and Puerto Rican radicals about what was the real South End. Was it the old architecture reminiscent of a time only appealing to rich white people? Or was it working class tenants, people of color, immigrants, activists? The gentrifiers won, of course, and by the time the 80s real estate boom sent property values into the stratosphere, the vaguely conservative early gentrifiers got to complain about new gentrifiers taking over their neighborhood. These new gentrifiers who started to come in around the late 80s and really came in around the 90s are the kind of people who voted for Hillary Clinton with no qualms. They're still upper middle class white professionals, but they're also liberals who probably got really excited about Justin Trudeau. And they moved to the south end because they want diversity. These are the people whom Jacobs predicted would come to hate the suburbs and indeed they came to the South End to escape the isolation of the suburbs and the snobbery of Back Bay and Beacon Hill. They want to experience the sidewalk ballet. Some might have even read Jacobs themselves. They're cultural omnivores in that they're not too picky about culture in the way the older gentrifiers are. They're artsy but not snobbish. They'll give any kind of culture a fair shake as long as it's not too ghetto. In fact. They'll brag about their exotic taste as they go to their favorite Indian Bistro, order some cream-based bullshit curry, eat it with wine because that makes sense, then go to a fancy-ass cafe for a chai thing that has literally nothing to do with actual chai. I'm barely exaggerating. There's a real restaurant in the South End that sells food inspired by Taiwanese soul food. There's an ice cream bar slash bakery slash cafe on Tremont Street that sells avocado ice cream. There's a tapas place that also sells foie gras because that's from Barcelona. And there's really a place that does modern Indian cuisine that has a dish called seafood masala, which in my house would mean a powdered spice mix for fish, but there apparently means fresh seafood in a creamy tomato sauce. The (sighs) f***? Anyway. These people don't want to make all the working class people of color go away. They don't want to displace everyone. In fact, they want to help people. When a homeless shelter in the South End proposed an expansion for a halfway house, a lot of people genuinely supported it. But the project was only approved after the shelter agreed to put heavy surveillance upon the residents. These formerly homeless adults would have to be supervised all the time, and they would have to deal with a guest policy stricter than that of dorms at UMass Amherst. The later gentrifiers came for diversity, for the working-class images of sitting on a stoop and saying hi to your neighbors, they tell goofy, charming stories on neighborhood tours about the South End's sordid, violent past, and they want to adopt people who just want to deal with their medical debt. But at the same time, these white, upper-middle-class professionals are scared of poor people, of black and brown people, of queer people who don't chase monogamy, kids, dogs. So the gentrifiers have boxed everyone else in. They lobbied against bars, and barbershops, and liquor stores. They valorized fancy cafes and those weird, expensive faux international restaurants. They have barely interacted with the actual people in the South End projects. And they have weaponized cute dogs to keep poor people out of the public. I'm not kidding about the dogs. Remember that fantasy about sitting on the stoop and saying hi to your neighbors? Yeah, no one does that in the South End. Tissot tried once with a friend, and they just got weird looks. Instead, people walk their dogs. In fact, they put a lot of money and effort into their dogs. There are dog walkers, dog bakeries, dog yoga places. Doga, they call it. Dogs give bougie white people a reason to walk outside that isn't immediately read as up to no good. They're the medium through which South End gentrifiers interact with each other. Because dogs in the South End play the part of surrogate children, the neighborhood isn't as hung up on the family unit. So single women and gay people, people without kids, can become part of the social sphere. And the dog culture also gives rise to one of the most insidious weapons of gentrification in the South End. The dog park. I'm still not kidding about the dogs. In the same way that park bench armrests drive away homeless people and notches on ledges drive away skateboarders, dog parks installed within larger parks drive away poor people. Not out of the park as a whole, but into a corner where they can be both admired and surveilled. Here's how it works. Neighborhood associations, which by the mid-60s were dominated by well-off white people, raised the funds to help renovate a park and install a dog park. Now we have this beautiful park that is half paid for by City Hall and half paid for by the association. That neighborhood association then has a stake in how the space is used, which means the rules are set and enforced by people who like keeping poor people of color in view, but at arm's length. And on top of that, like, how many public housing residents have a labradoodle? And thus, that one corner of the park that smells of dog poop has no one but upper middle class white people because they set the rules through polite peer pressure and because no one has any business being there. The gentrification in the South End isn't about displacing poor black and brown people. If displacement was the goal, it would have happened by now. What's happening instead is that the gentrifiers are appropriating public spaces, taking them for themselves, and using poor black and brown people as part of the background where these people serve the purpose of adding diversity to the neighborhood. This is what happens when performative allies move into a working class, non-white neighborhood. This is what happens when people committed to equality and tolerance take over a neighborhood to flatter their own kumbaya fantasies about what they think a better world looks like. This is what happens when Jane Jacobs fails to name what she means by diversity. The Gentrifiers of the South End filled in their own self-serving definition of diversity. They defined it as the mix of coexisting social groups engaging in mutual civil tolerance with no commitment to redistribution, to justice, to examining the power structures that prop up racism, inequality, and oppression of all forms. Because a performative ally is someone who does things only as long as those things make them feel like a good person. They don't want to face the hard realizations that come from really thinking about what's right. They don't want to give up the control and lucky benefits inherent in being white and being well off. They want to fight for racial tolerance, but they don't want to face the fact that when they see a black guy walking down the street, they worry he's up to no good. They don't want to face the possibility that they're not as good a person as they think they are. Quick footnote, a performative ally need not be white or well-off, as is the case with the South End Gentrifier. Performative allyship can rest on any kind of lucky benefit with regards to race, gender, class, sexuality, ability, etc. Everyone is racist and classist. It's a package deal of living in a racist society that is very adamant that poor people deserve their poverty. But a true sign of a performative ally is the use of proxies to justify vaguely racist and classist beliefs. And the gentrifiers of the South End have plenty of them, which to took the time to write down. The gentrifiers gin up concern about violence, alcoholism, prostitution, and tobacco use among the other folks in the South End compared to their own civility and friendliness. They decry confrontation, radical protest, emotional arguments, compared to their own reasoned discussion among nice people. On their walking tours of the south end, they talk about the decay of the past, whether horrible or charming, and compare it to how nice the place is now. The older gentrifiers lobbied against bars, against liquor stores with plexiglass windows and metal grates, places that working-class people went to, then the newer gentrifiers replaced them with wine stores with big glass windows. The newer gentrifiers talk of homophobia and catcalling from folks in the homeless shelter in comparison to their own progressive tendencies. They shun Dunkin' Donuts and hamburgers and fried chicken and big portions in favor of 300-calorie lattes and simulacra of third-world cuisines with French words scribbled all over them. Even dogs! The gentrifiers are all scared of pit bulls. Chissot mentions one couple who had a horror story about their dog being eaten whole by a pit bull. Because all pit bulls are aggressive, right? <laughs> Clearly no racist overtones here. The point is, there's a whole vocabulary for voicing concerns about working class black and brown people. If you want to shut down a bar that black people go to, just complain about drunk people outside. If you want to push poor people into a corner, just talk about homeless people smoking cigarettes and say you can only smoke here. I get that there are valid safety concerns around alcohol, smoking, sex work, and violence. But the dichotomies I mentioned here were all things that Tissot wrote down as proxies for racing class used to keep poor people and people of color in a corner where they can be admired for their diversity, but also watched for any signs of perceived deviance. So what have we learned? We have picked up a few ways of looking at gentrification. Gentrification as appropriation, not displacement. There is still low-income housing in the South End. There are still homeless shelters. And there are enough powerful neighborhood associations to make them go away. The rhetoric against these developments already exists. But that hasn't happened. Gentrifiers didn't clear-cut the neighborhood and build modern glass-and-steel structures in its place, and they didn't kick out all the people they considered the other. Instead, they appropriated the neighborhood. They came in, took what they wanted, and pushed away the rest. The older gentrifiers wanted the architecture, so they came in, took it, and pushed away the rest. The newer gentrifiers wanted the impression of diversity, so they have come in, lovingly maintained that diversity, and kept true racial and economic justice at arm's length. Gentrification as the dark side of unslumming. The story of the South End was literally what Jacobs thought would create a healthy city neighborhood. People stayed. People engaged in neighborhood level governance. Those neighborhood associations were powerful enough to fight city hall and win. And as far as I can tell, the South End is a paragon of health by the measures Jacobs cared about. Mixed primary uses. The South End is a residential area and a commercial and artistic center to lesser extents. Small, non-homogeneous blocks. The South End has that. Not to North End levels, but better than Back Bay. A mix of new and old buildings. The buildings all look the same, but the gentrifiers renovated their homes to the point that they were new buildings again. So it's still a mix, for all intents and purposes. And high density. At the very least, there are buildings everywhere, all scrunched together. And on top of all of that, there are few dead zones. I check Google Maps. There are businesses on almost every street they are distributed even more evenly than the businesses in the North End. If I take Jane Jacobs at her word, this neighborhood is perfect, but it's very obviously gentrified. Don't take my word for it. Tissot's book literally has the words gentrifying diversity in the title. So clearly, Jacobs was missing something. Perhaps it's not just the question of whether the neighborhood organizes, but who in the neighborhood organizes for what, or as Lennon would put it, who and whom. Gentrification as the result of performative allyship meeting urban planning. A lot of the people gentrifying the South End really care about diversity and inclusion and tolerance, but they don't want to be uncomfortable. And thus, they idolize the idea of living among poor people and people of color while pushing away all signs of those people's humanity in the name of safety. This last view is the scariest for me personally because as a cishet upper middle class model minority man going into a professional field A lot of the pitfalls of performative allyship are pitfalls I'm susceptible to. Let me translate myself. I'm not gay. I'm not transgender. I'm a dude. I grew up well off. I'm of an ethnic background, considered one of the successful minorities, and I'm going into a well-paying field, engineering. All of this means it's very easy for me to deeply screw up trying to be good to queer people, women, working class people, and even other people of color. I like fancy espresso drinks and weird food and vaguely nerdy and artsy things. I talk about feminism. I hang out with activist people. Just the summer, I was literally in a Harvard Square cafe complaining about capitalism with a latte in my hand. How bourgeois is that? <laughs> I fit the profile of the South End Gentrifier really well, which doesn't bode well for my hopes of living in the city without contributing to gentrification. And I don't know what to do about it. Next week, we're brochure hunting. I have a little list of developments that I think are gentrifying structures, and we're going to analyze their promotional materials and look for patterns. This episode is based on Good Neighbors, Gentrifying Diversity in Boston's South End by Sylvie Tissot. I misdated the title earlier. It was translated by David Broder and Catherine Romotowski, and was published by Verso in 2015. Writing, music, narration, and production by Ajay Fonde. This is an independent study for UMass Amherst under the guidance of Professor Jenny Adams and Professor Sanjay Arwade. For questions, comments, critiques, and concerns, you can contact me at afonde at umass.edu. Thank you for listening.